Who do you want to be as a leader? What are the blind spots you're missing? If you had a magic wand and you could change anything about your workplace, what would you do with it? These are the kinds of questions we explore on Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt. I'm a keynote speaker, emotional intelligence coach, and leadership trainer who partners with executives and emerging leaders who want to achieve extraordinary results for themselves and their organizations. You're in the right place if you're ready to cultivate the self-awareness to be the leader you were born to be. Let's go on this journey together. Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt, and I have another really, really amazing guest. Can't wait to introduce you to her. Um, so today's guest is dubbed as a moxie maven by President Obama's White House Office of Public Engagement for her unique and effective approach to high stakes communication and leadership developments. Alexia is a sought after advisor to executives, corporate teams, entrepreneurs, coaches, change makers, and emerging leaders who want to speak with an unshakable presence, sell their ideas, navigate daring conversations, develop high performing teams, advance their thought leadership, and make, make a lasting social impact. Welcome to the show, Alexia. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to let everybody know that this isn't my first time meeting Alexia. So I always like to give a bit of a history. So I had the pleasure of meeting. Um, I'm going to sometimes go back between Alexia and Lex because it feels weird for me to say Alexia. I'm so used to Lex. Um, but I met Lex back in 2017 when I did some amazing, phenomenal speaker training with her. And then as my business evolved, um, started to work with, uh, with Lex again back in 2020, um, doing a lot of business coaching, speaking training, all of that kind of stuff. So she's my business coach. I continue to work with her right now. And just think she's a phenomenal, phenomenal person. And it's so grateful to have you in my life, Lex. Mm, the feeling is so mutual. I'm so glad you said the year because I was thinking about how long I've known you and watching your trajectory, not only in terms of your confidence as a speaker in it, in your message, but also the kinds of opportunities you have been able to generate for yourself with the kinds of clients you've been able to work with. We had the opportunity to work together um, over the last year with one of my clients. Like I just have so much respect for you as a human, as well as as a coach and a consultant and a trainer. Ah, uh, I'm receiving fully. Thank Please you. <laughs> so Alexa, I would love just as a starting point to get pe give people an opportunity to get to know you a little better in your story, because you haven't always worked as an entrepreneur leading your business. And I think it's actually quite interesting because I talk a lot about how a lot of times our career paths are not linear. They zig and they zig and they zag. <laughs> so share a little bit more around your story and how, what got you to the work you're currently doing. I love this question because I find most people who identify as a coach in some capacity didn't wake up, you know, at 18 or 19, go to school to become a coach, hang out their shingle. And then that was all she, he, or they wrote. <laughs> There's usually been a bit of a circuitous path. And that's certainly been the case for me. So I thought after I completed my undergraduate education in women's studies and then my master's degree in theater for social justice that I would work in the nonprofit sector and change the world. And that's what I set out to do. And what I recognized pretty early on was that while 
I loved doing work that made positive social impact. And I really loved leading professional development programs, which is the role I was in. As the daughter of somebody who's an entrepreneur, I found a lot of constraints within nonprofit structure. And I owed more in student loan money than I made in the course of a year. And when I found the person I wanted to spend the rest of my life with, knew I wanted to have a child, asked some really tough questions in my late 20s about how do I hold on to that desire to make impact? How do I keep the components of leading training? But how do I do it in a way that gives me a little bit more freedom, flexibility, and growth potential? And I wish I could tell you that I asked those questions and then fast forward 90 days later, I had an amazing business. That would be lying. (laughs) (laughs) It took me a good probably five years to figure out as, and I, I wear all these hats, coach, consultant, trainer, like what is really my zone of genius? And Initially, like a lot of people who perhaps have come through the consulting world, I allowed opportunities to really dictate who I was. Coming out in the nonprofit sector, I had a lot of opportunities to work in nonprofit and education. But then when I did hang out my shingle, it was 2007, 2008. So there was the Great Recession, and I had a lot of opportunities to talk about how do you future-proof your potential? How do you, because this was when millennials were entering the workplace, how do you recruit and retain millennials and integrate the four generations in the workplace? Like lots of different stuff. And I kept saying to myself, once I get my revenue to a certain amount, then I really want to go back and figure out how do I focus more on public speaking and interpersonal communication? Because Throughout my life, I wish I could say this in the past, but it's absolutely still present. Most of my life, I've been in an on-again, off-again relationship with my own voice, even as somebody who's been on the public speaking and training circuit most of her professional life. And I knew that there was a lot that I had learned that had allowed me to navigate those moments of discomfort with more ease. Um, There was a lot that I had learned that allowed me to help people when communication came up in conversations to be able to speak up for the ideas and issues that they were passionate about. And I knew from the work that I did with coaches and consultants that public speaking could be a great way to grow your business. And so about 13, 14 years ago, I really pivoted to make that the primary focus of my work doing work both on the coach consultant side, but also on the organizational side in terms of working initially with executives, but now oftentimes with critical teams and women's leadership and diversity initiatives around the speaking up component. And what I would want anyone who's listening to know whatever side you come from is if you are somebody who has found yourself perhaps in the last couple of years having to pivot in ways you didn't anticipate, that oftentimes the really good stuff happens 18 to 24 months after one of those big pivots and not to feel like I've made some shifts. I haven't had a eureka moment yet. The signs aren't there, is it coming? Like I, I, I'm not somebody, when I was young, I was often lauded for being the first to do something. I'm definitely not somebody who was one of the first to um, make her business successful. It took a long time. But what I know is that when I've hung in there, that's oftentimes when the pivots have been most successful rather than trying to pivot too many times and then spinning my wheels. You know, I think that's really important what you're sharing there, because I think sometimes we do live in this instant gratification world. And so 
someone does try something new. And I remember even actually hearing this with podcasting, how many podcasts just when it was about to actually start to grow, people left because they had this expectation. And I think we don't necessarily give ourselves enough time and space and credit to recognize that progress takes time. And I think with what you said as well, what was coming up for me is also acknowledging all the little steps and all of the different milestones and celebrations along the way, because there can be so much focus on getting to this place. And then we don't celebrate all of the progress. And then it's like, oh, we get to that place. And we're like, what's going on here? I'm not feeling this happiness or joy that I was expecting, because to me, it's so often all of that progress along the journey that we feel that satisfaction. So Alexia, tell me more about, um, so I know that you, and you do such a great job of this in terms of the spaces you create when you're doing training, um, psychological safety, and for people to feel comfortable being vulnerable and using their voice. And when you think about organizations, because I think this can be a blind spot and where there is a lot of opportunity for change to happen is that, um, there isn't necessarily a safe space created in, and I don't want to say that the training's not doing this, but maybe they're not even investing in training to be able to do this, to help people be able to speak up, use their voice, um, whether that's women, whether that's people from marginalized group. And to be honest, sometimes that's men too, when it comes to allyship and them really being able to own their voice. What do you think is some of what shows up for you in terms of some of the barriers for this kind of work being done effectively? I love that you're asking this question because I don't think at any other point in my life or professional history has the conversation around speaking up been so prominent in the professional development space. And yet so often there's a lot of lip service given to speaking up, but not a lot of consideration about what are the factors that are going to facilitate it. And I could jam on this subject <laughs> all day long. But I think, you know, when I look at the Step in Your Moxie vocal empowerment system that underpins all of the work that I do, it's three-pronged. At the root, it's a fusion of self-empowerment and social justice. And that's really important because we can talk about what are those individual factors to enable somebody to speak up and out. But if we disconnect that from what are the systemic, institutional, cultural factors that have played a role in them not feeling safe and comfortable and valued when they speak up, we're doing them a disservice. And so a lot of my work is rooted in self-empowerment, but especially over the last few years and given the background that I have professionally, it's also looking at what are the, and I'm going to get theoretical for a minute, for a minute, but what are the eyes of oppression that might be in play for this person? So what's happening ideologically at the belief system of, let's say the institution they're a part of, what's happening institutionally in terms of the culture, what's happening interpersonally between that person and other people. So what are the messages that that person has received? But then also intrapersonally, what does one's self-talk, how is one able to hold space for uncomfortable feelings? Like looking at all of those things. But that's just the bottom piece of the triangle, if you will. One of the other pieces, um, which really comes back to the psychological safety, is making sure that training, when we're talking about speaking up, is trauma sensitive. 
And I draw, I, I want to draw a distinction between trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive. Trauma-informed means we are licensed to handle trauma. And that's not what I'm talking about because the majority of people in organizations and certainly external coaches don't have that background. But I don't think trauma-sensitive is a nice to have anymore. It's a necessity. We know the majority of adults have experienced some trauma, in many cases, multiple traumas throughout their lives. And one of the most prevalent areas where that shows up is in our communication. And our communication has a role in absolutely everything, (laughs) everything that we do, every result we achieve or every result that we don't. So learning how in the coaching, in the training, or even in the everyday management conversations we might have, be aware of how trauma might be showing up. And it doesn't mean that we have to heal that person's trauma, but it can inform how do we slow down? How do we ask questions? How do we hold space for people to navigate and find their words when they're uncomfortable? And then the last real um, piece of that triangle is role play. And uh, I, growing up, did a fair amount of improv, particularly during my college years with the Second City. I wound up teaching improv uh, after graduate school, and I'm a horrendous improviser. Maybe I'm a little bit better as an adult, but like when it was for performance sake, I was not the best improviser because I love to plan. I never trusted I could be funny on the fly. But when I'm talking about role play, I'm not talking about needing to perform characters or even tell stories that elicit laughter every 30 to 60 seconds. What I mean is if we want people to possess the mindset and the skill set to be able to speak up, whether that's on behalf of themselves, on behalf of their companies, on behalf of people who are experiencing bias or outright marginalization, it's naive to think that we can teach that. Communication is a oral form. And so role play is another huge piece, giving people opportunities to practice out loud what they're going to say, receive real-time behavior and coaching on what works to solidify it, what needs to be tweaked to adapt it. And that's going to set people up when the stakes are even higher outside of that conversation or outside of that training to be able to speak up and not want to cower in the corner and stay mom. Yeah. Wow. I love the way you've addressed it. So many areas, because what I notice sometimes is that too much of the training is surface and it's not going deeper and getting at the roots and taking in all of those different factors. So I like that it really feels foundational here and making sure things that sometimes get left out. Um, especially like trauma sensitive. Absolutely. Because we've all, I, I like sometimes talk about little T and, and big T and little T we've all had little teas. I mean, and they, they keep on being uncovered. I know for myself every day, another one, like, Oh, I didn't recognize it. I've been carrying around this baggage for a long time. And, you know, something that shows up for me is for you, Lex, I know that you have a passion around doing a certification and having other leaders go out there and be able to do this work by getting certified on it. So that to me, it feels like it's now expanding and the impact starts to become bigger because you're only one person. And while you're an amazing person, you can't be getting all over the world to these different organizations. So I'm curious for you, like, what was the catalyst that made you realize that you wanted to start thinking about certifying other people and getting this to more organizations or to more places? Thank you for this question. I've been thinking a lot about it lately. 
when when the idea came, because as you know, we're getting close to having the first cohort go through certification and on the brink of enrolling the second. And in some ways, I think the certification has been incubating since 2017 when I got a book deal to write Step Into Your Moxie. I knew when writing that book, which is about how to amplify your voice, your visibility, and your influence, that on the heels of it was, how do you not just do that for yourself, but how do you do it so that you can make it easier for others to do the same. And for the promise of that next piece was actually training people to be able to lead it. Uh, and then in 2020, as you are well aware, I got diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And one of the most challenging parts of that process was complications I had from my biopsy just to diagnose the thyroid cancer. And the very real threat that the hoarseness I was experiencing could be permanent and also could potentially be amplified by surgery to remove my thyroid. And I'm somebody who can make a really fast decision when she needs to, but I'm also somebody who can really sit and feel her way through things when a clear answer isn't rising. And so it took me almost a year to get the surgery because I did know, fortunately, it wasn't an aggressive cancer because I was really trying to figure out what's the level of risk I feel comfortable taking on and what to me is the measurement of a really juicy life. And I got really clear that what was more important to me was not necessarily having to be the thought leader leading this work, but that oh, I get emotional just thinking about it, that I would not have lived my legacy if I'm not able to do this work anymore and nobody else is using this vocal empowerment system because I've just seen how many lives have been transformed over the years. And so that's when, <laughs> this might sound ridiculous, I planned when I could get surgery around how quickly I could put together everything that had been incubating for a while around certification. So it was like, I need to get a lot of the foundation created, have the surgery in case I have a lot of recovery, but also be really clear that I'm moving to enroll people in this soon after. And so I'd say in the last 12 months, I've been moving much more um, aggressively to get this certification program created. Wow. You know, thank you so much for, for being vulnerable and, and sharing that, because I think it is sometimes those poignant catalyst moments that make you pause and really ask yourself the deeper questions. And what, ha and this is going to be a vulnerable vulnerability moment too, because that's such a big part of this podcast too, is I, I want them to get to know Alexia, the person. And if you feel comfortable sharing in this moment, um, so I, I love that it was a catalyst to get you really thinking about bigger picture. What do you want to do with this business and impact and legacy? What else did you learn about yourself through that process, Lex? There's so many lessons I feel like I've learned over the last 12 months. And I'm sure many people listening are like, yes, I'm right there with you. I've learned so many things. Um, in some ways, I think the greatest lesson I learned that was then echoed for me when I did some trauma training over the course of the summer was that if you don't heal a particular trauma, the trauma will keep coming back and find ways to be expressed. And so for me, the question then became, what is the trauma that I haven't fully healed that got lodged here? 
And that wasn't very complicated for me to answer. Um, because the first time that I can remember stepping into my moxie, I was a child, four years old and it was Christmas. And my dad, as I mentioned, was an entrepreneur. So at holidays, he used to have a big shindig (laughs) at our house. He would invite over friends, extended family, neighbors, any employee who didn't have a place to go. And this particular Christmas after everybody had gone home, and my parents were asleep in their bedroom and I was asleep in mine. It was one of those nights that I just couldn't fall asleep because I had made a promise that evening to keep a secret. And although this was back before that expression, snitches get stitches, (laughs) um, I still had a, a keen understanding, even being just four years old, that I wasn't supposed to speak up, but yet if I didn't, something inside of me would never be the same. And so I got myself out of bed. I walked across the hallway to my parents' bedroom and I told them that I was being sexually abused by another family member. And I share that story for a couple of reasons. I wish it were because my story was unusual, but although it would take me probably 15 or 20 years to realize our family was not unique, um, that unfortunately this happens more commonly than we are aware. What I also couldn't understand for a long time was why I spoke up when so many young people don't feel safe to be able to do so. And it wasn't until many, many years later, like I was already engaged in this work that I finally found the answer around the time that I was pregnant. My mom and I were going through old memorabilia and we stumbled upon this article that had been ripped from a parenting magazine. And the article was about how do you talk to your children about what constitutes safe touch? And there were all these notes in the article in my mom's handwriting indicating that she had had that conversation with me and that I knew what to say if a situation ever happened. And so It's like a light bulb went off that has stayed lit ever since. The reason I spoke up is not because I was naturally endowed with moxie, um, but rather because I had practiced, I had role-played one of the most challenging conversations a parent, I think any human could ever have to role-play, but I knew what to say. And so when that situation presented itself, I spoke up. And that was really for me when, like, sometimes we know what our why is, but sometimes we do work because we call, we feel called to it. And we don't realize until a lot later, like, what was that inciting incident? And that's when I realized, of course, role play has always played such a prominent role in the work that I do, because uh, I learned really early on that we can say anything and we can live through the discomfort of saying anything if we have role play as a tool to aid us. Mm. And so when this happened, I realized, yeah, there was still some stuff from my childhood because when I did speak up, there were people like my mom who absolutely protected me, but there were other people in my family who just weren't ready for the heaviness of that revelation, particularly since it was about another family member. And there were a lot of things I hadn't said to certain family members in a lot of years. And so in some cases, I was able to do that in other cases, that opening isn't there and that's okay too. But 
um, needing to heal so that um, I can show up more powerfully to do this work with others. And I just want to reflect, it's such a, a beautiful part of who you are is that I feel so often you share your stories in service of others who can see themselves in some ways with the stories that you share and make them feel less alone and less uncomfortable and less that their messiness is unique, right? Because I think you do such a great job of helping all of us recognize that the, the messiness is part of the human condition. Um, and that we can learn and learn through sharing with each other. And I think that's such a big part that you talk through with the visibility and sharing our stories because, well, some people might think, well, nobody wants to hear my story. It's that nobody's had the same lived experience as you have. And that story um, and the way that you teach people to be able to take stories, but then apply what you're saying, the story and ask very powerful questions to help people have their transformational experience um, is just such a phenomenal gift that you have. Thank you. Can I share uh, something that feels really relevant about storytelling that happened yes. today, actually? Yes, please. So I, I've been very forthcoming about most of the things that have a communication component that have happened. And I've always done it from the perspective of, I won't really talk about other people's behaviors and situations. I'll center my voice and my perspective and let other people tell their stories. And so when I had the thyroid cancer diagnosis, in some ways it was one of the easier stories to tell because, you know, I think most of us can agree. You don't blame the cancer victim for having done something. There's no, there's no bad person in this story. Um, and you know, there's nothing like helping other people with their voices when your voice isn't particularly strong as it wasn't for a year where it's like, okay, you kind of have to address this early on, or people are going to think you have horrible vocal hygiene. So I did. And after my surgery, I particularly wanted to speak up a lot about the healing process, because one of the things that thyroid cancer survivors often get told is that the worst part is what happens once your thyroid comes out and having to find um, what's the right balance of medication and so forth. And while I don't want to say that it is untrue that that's not a challenge because it absolutely was, I also felt it was important to be really honest about the fact that I'm showing up, I'm living my life. I'm, I took a little bit of time off, but I'm working with clients. And these are some things I would have done differently had I known more about thyroid cancer going in. And these are the decisions that I ultimately made, including traveling cross country to go to the Clayman Thyroid Center for my treatment. And the reason I'm bringing this up and why I said it's relevant is you never know on social media who's going to hear a message, not only for themselves, but for someone else. So maybe three or four weeks ago, I got a message on Facebook from somebody saying a friend of a friend had shared my information because she had just gotten diagnosed with thyroid cancer. She was referred to see a physician, to see a surgeon didn't feel comfortable and knew that I had made some different choices. Well, fast forward three weeks later, as of today, we had a conversation. This person is getting treatment at the exact same center. I did feeling really good about her decision. It's somebody who would have never known that option was probably available. Um, wouldn't have had somebody who she was one degree removed from to be able to ask questions of. And so for anyone who thinks, whether it's a health issue, whether it's 
grief due to something that happened in your family, if you are in a position where you feel comfortable, because I think that's key, nobody is requiring us or should be requiring us to speak our stories. But when we sense that they could be of service, never underestimate the ripples that telling a story might create. Wow. Incredible. And reminds me again of the example of sometimes we can say social media is all bad and social media is all good. No, it's a beautiful combination of all of it. And it's how it's being used and it can be used in incredibly, incredibly powerful ways as your story just demonstrated. Wow. When I think about, you know, I've run ads before and sometimes with ads, you're like, is anybody really seeing this? And then, you know, an organic post that didn't have a ton of traffic. I mean, it had a fair amount. But just knowing that that somehow got passed from someone who'd never even liked it that I saw, like I'd never had a conversation to somebody else who was in need, restored my faith in social media, particularly at a time um, and on a platform that has had a lot of, um, what should we say, um, issues as of late. Yes. A little bit of controversy there. Yeah. It's such a good reminder. Um, you know, something else that's showing up for me right now, Lex, is when you start to think about stepping into your moxie and I've been able to witness it as somebody who's been in your programs and experienced it firsthand, but I know with you working with many, many leaders over the years in a variety of industries, a variety of capacities, I'm sure there are some common themes that you see time and time again, that really prevent people from really stepping into their moxie. I'm curious around what are some of those themes that you notice? Yeah, I think one of the biggest is this assumption that if if you've achieved a certain title, you're in a certain income bracket, people are reporting to you, you're being tasked with speaking frequently that you should have this all figured out. And that if you don't, it means one of two things, either you snuck into your role and you really don't deserve to be there or there's something fundamentally wrong with you that you have to hide because if people figure it out, you will lose your credibility. People won't trust you. You won't be as likable and so forth. And I want to acknowledge because people who are listening might say, oh, that's probably women she's talking about. Mm -hmm. I actually see it as much, if not more so with senior executive men. And I have so many men who will come who are senior leaders, you know, C-suite and say, I don't want anyone to know that I found you out. (laughs) Like they heard me on an interview, something like this, or they read an article that I wrote and they're like, I'm one of those people. And I, I, I don't know what's wrong, but can you help me figure it out? And so the, the keys to being able to figure it out is that to be able to step into your moxie, which I realize I haven't described. So maybe I'll just like define what I mean by that for a minute. To me, when I say step into your moxie, it means you possess the mindset, but also the skill set to be able to walk into any room, into any conversation, onto any stage, and unapologetically speak up for yourself, for the ideas and issues that matter to you and to your organization. And when you speak, call people to take action. And There's not just one skill that's attached to that. There are a lot. But if we think back to our triangle, um, you know, I wish I had my model right here because I would show it to people on video, but I realize a lot of people are listening on audio, so that would be moot. But there's different tiers, much like if you think about Maslow's hierarchy. So at the base might be our inner voice, 
what our self-talk is doing on a moment-to-moment basis, whether it's being critical of ourselves, judgmental, overly motivational at the detriment that we're winging communication and then we're not having the impact that we want, that can be coming up, but that's only one tier. So we've got to work on the self-talk, but for some people, that's okay. That's not where things are getting really funky. What might be happening is happening at the physiological level for moving up the triangle. So the physiological level means what happens in your body during high stakes conversations. Does it feel like there's pools of water coming out of your armpits? Does it feel like your heart is lurching into your throat? Does it feel like your knees are shaking and learning how to be present with that discomfort and come back to a place of calm if and when that happens? And then the next level is really the messaging. That's where role play can be really helpful. I mean, to be clear, role play can actually be really helpful in terms of being present with the sensations and learning how to speak through them. But especially on the messaging piece, role play can be so helpful because that's where we practice out loud what we want to say rather than writing it down and trying to memorize it, which rarely is effective because then that centers us in a conversation rather than the outcome we're trying to move a conversation toward. And then as we move toward the upper tiers, it's presence, knowing what to do with our bodies, knowing how to take up space in a way that's authentic. So we're not going hyper-masculine or hyper-feminine because we're contorting ourselves into who we think others want us to be. And then ultimately at the highest is being able to move people to take action because we've created credibility, likability, and trust. And there's a lot there, right? And I think a lot of people get in their own way because they think, oh, I'm just not persuasive. Let's say at the top, people aren't taking action or my messaging stinks. Maybe English was my second language or I'm just somebody who needs a lot of time to sculpt their messages. Or maybe where they're getting stuck is they say, I just have nasty self-talk. And so my inner voice is crap and that's what's coming out of my mouth. But really helping people look at where is the funkiness coming up from? So we're actually addressing the right place. Yeah. Wow. So much of what you said, uh, there's so many places I want to go with what you just said, because uh, first off, that's been my experience as well. Uh, if not more males in that, it's hard for them to even ask for help that they're, su- they're supposed to be at this place and they're done developing and growing, which from my perspective, you're not done growing and developing until you die. Like it's never done. Like it's a, it's an evolution. And I always like to talk about the onion and you're removing layer after layer after layer. I think about so many people with what you're saying there in terms of being with their body, um, how many people in, in my generation are, are going further? Um, nobody pulled us aside when we were little to help us with emotional intelligence and say, this is what's going on in your body. And this is what it looks like to be with it. So many people were like, nope, we'll just suppress and repress, push that down, push that down. And I mean, what a beautiful gift you are giving people Lex, when you help them understand that, because I, and I like when you, you talk a lot about being scare sighted, um, which is, yeah, it's a bit scary. And you're excited at the same time, because ultimately it's just a sensation. It's how we're labeling the sensation. Um, and I loved when somebody told me as a speaker, I don't know, as some sort of training and someone said, just so you know, Kristen, I've been doing this for 15 years and I still get all the feels before I get on a stage. So then I recognize like, oh, okay. I'm not trying to get to this place where I suddenly don't ever feel sensation. It's about being with and working through the sensation because sometimes it's intense. So you got to shake it around as an example. Because it means we're in the game. It's our body revving up. It means that 
we care. And if that's not present, it usually means we're not invested or we're not really speaking our truth in the fullest way because we are saying something that is unlikely to elicit a response. If we are saying something that's truly disruptive and moving people to take action, there's likely that potential that people may not agree. They may not say yes. They might even have some resistance and say something nasty. That's not what we don't want is to say, I want to get to that place of calm where then we're mismanaging the responsibility to actually use our voice to advocate for something. And instead we're just getting airtime, but we're not really doing anything important. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think from what you're saying there too, it's like the energy you bring to it, right? Because you know what it feels like when you're really in your power and, and showing up in an authentic way. And, and it's reminding me something else that you talk about that I think is important that you started to talk through with the masculine and feminine energy. Um, I, I hear sometimes when we talk about the bunny where we're holding back, but I think sometimes we don't talk about the other extreme where we're actually doing the dragon, right? So maybe if you could just even differentiate that, cause, cause I love the analogy of the cheetah. Um, so what, where, what it feels and looks like to be in the cheetah, as opposed to the bunny or yeah. the dragon, because we can go to both sides. And I think sometimes we just think, oh, we go to one or the other, but we can go back and forth. I love using animals and mythological creatures, as Kristen has suggested as archetypes for what we're doing in our communication. So if you think about a bunny, Bunnies are soft and cute and adorable. I saw one running across the street as I was dropping my daughter off at school this morning. I wanted to pull over and find it. It was just like, oh, but when it comes to communication, when we are going bunny, it usually means that we are apologizing, not necessarily saying I'm sorry when we have nothing to be sorry for but we're not taking up a lot of space. We're not projecting our ideas. That's when we find we are really contorting ourselves into whom we think others want us to be and playing small typically. But on the other side of the spectrum is that dragon. And if you think about a dragon, they are fiery. So when we're doing that, we're stepping, not stepping into our moxie, but we're really puffing up and performing. So if you're an introvert, that might mean like I used to do, being loud in a way that just was not honest, particularly when I would speak and present or coming onto stages as a keynote speaker and dancing and fist pumping when like my background is ballet and pretty (laughs) awkward with most other dance forms. You know, it's not to disrespect people who are natural dancers on stage. That just wasn't me. But if we look at that in a more traditional communication or training situation, we're going dragon when it's our way or the highway, when we're not asking questions, when we're not open to feedback, when it feels like it's a monologue rather than a dialogue. And the opportunity for all of us is to recognize first and foremost, what are the situations when we are going bunny and when we are going dragon? Because rarely are we always bunny or always dragon, even if we have a predilection and uncomfortable communication moments toward one versus the other, but to move toward the cheetah as Kristen introduced. And so if you think about the cheetah, they can accelerate faster than any other land mammal up to 60 miles uh, per hour in a matter of seconds. You think about their eyes, they're big and they're present. And it's almost like there's tear marks that are permanently imprinted. And so as an archetype, there's that ability to accelerate when it's appropriate. 
but also to hold back and to be very present and to watch what's going on and to let that inform what we're doing with our communication. So when we're in that cheetah energy, we're not trying to have power over anyone. We are in our authentic power. We are watching and seeing what's going on and we are absolutely allowing others to see us and we're being really present. We're taking breath. We're feeling what needs to be felt. We're healing what needs to be healed. And, you know, as you say that, that that's my vision. I want more organizations with leaders who are tapping into the cheetah, right? Because that's the place where amazing things can happen. You bring people on board and they want to be part of that, right? You, they get, they get on board with your vision and where you're taking them. And um, I think too often, you know, I see both for a variety of reasons. So I, I think I, I'm hoping when people are hearing right now, it helps to drive that point down in a different way that I hope is resonating with people. Cause I know for me, as soon as I heard, I'm like, Oh, I get it now because sometimes the masculine feminine energy. Yeah. Like we get that, but I don't think it drives, drives home the point the same way as you do with the, um, the archetypes with the animals. And, you know, I'm an animal person too. So maybe that's part of it. And for a while, I want to own a bias that I had that I thought women were defaulting more to bunny and men were defaulting more to dragon. And now I recognize it's really not solely about gender. There are different situations for each of us that are going to drive us more into bunny, that are going to drive us more into dragon. And on the positive side, there's certain situations where we're going to be able to show up as a cheetah more easily than in others. So when I think about facilitating conversations with clients, whether that's an individual or whether that's a large group of people, it's pretty easy these days for me to go into that cheetah zone because I've been doing this for years and that tends to not be a triggering environment. But having to tell a family member that they've trespassed a boundary, I can, within a matter of a five-minute conversation, go bunny dragon, bunny dragon, bunny dragon. And at least now I'm self-aware. I know that I'm doing that. And so it's like, Lex, cheetah, cheetah, go back to cheetah, go back to cheetah. But I love when groups, particularly organizational teams will do some of this work because then they start to have that common vocabulary and quite lovingly can say that sounded a little dragon, or that was a little bit bunny. And it lands a lot better when we know what that means. And it's not, you are a bunny or you are a dragon. That behavior, that thing you said was received that way. It oftentimes can keep that relationship much more intact and allowed for the repair of the behavior more easily. Yes, yes, yes. And it gives them some concrete feedback that they can work with. Like, okay, that's what I was doing there. Um, I talk a lot about with feedback. I, I see way too much of feedback that is not concrete and not clear and not specific. And it's an, an it's a missed opportunity. Yes. So it's always hard for me to end the show. I could go on and on for hours with you. You have so much to, to share Alexia, but I'm going to, we're going to be sharing with, with the audience, how they can learn more about you and, and your programs. But before we even go there, I always like to give my guests an opportunity to leave the audience with a final thought, whatever showing up for you in this moment. So what's coming up for me, which is rare, because I don't usually lead with a stat, (laughs) but it's a stat. And I think it's indicative of what so many of us are feeling and experiencing, but perhaps not naming. Um, In 2020, so about a year or so ago, the MIT Sloan School of Management surveyed 6,000 Microsoft employees about how often they spoke up specifically to their managers. 
and less than 50% reported that they consistently did. And what's equally sobering is that 17.5% of those employees surveyed said that they never spoke up. And so if you see yourself or your organization um, or your consultant and you see your clients in that statistic to just remember that there is likely a speaking up component to every problem that that individual, that organization is experiencing right now. And if you see that, it's not only an opportunity to talk and to help them learn about speaking up in the holistic way we, we, de we describe, but it's really a responsibility so that we are not perpetuating so many of the crises that have come to a head over the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah that's a really, really powerful statistic. Um, Alexia, where can people learn more about your work and your upcoming certification program? Yes. So one of the best places to find me is at stepintoyourmoxie.com, which is my website, which will share more with you about the Step Into Your Moxie work that I do. And as Kristen mentioned, we also run a certification program, which you can learn about over on that website. Um, we have a whole certification page. So if that sounds like something that makes sense for you as a business leader so that you can support your teams, Maybe you're a trainer and you want to infuse speaking up into a lot of your curriculum because you realize there's a component there, there that hasn't been addressed. Or maybe you're an external consultant and recognize this could be a great value add for your coaching, for your training clients. You can learn more info there, including how to apply. And if for any reason you do choose to apply, um, be sure to list um, either the podcast or Kristen Harcourt as your referral source, because we do like to say thank you to people who send people our way. Wow. Well, I will have all of that in the show notes. Um, Alexia, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you for holding space for this conversation and for knowing me well, knowing what to ask and just giving me space to be able to share. I hope for people this was valuable. And um, I'm also pretty prominent as Kristen is over on LinkedIn. And so if you wanna send me a message about anything that might've resonated, please feel free to do so because I love connecting with people over there as well. Perfect. So everybody, wherever you are in the world right now, we're saying good morning, good afternoon, good evening, sending tons of love. Please remember that meaningful change requires space and grace. Practice self-compassion and become the ripple. As you transform yourself, you transform your workplace and the people around you.